Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. My guest today is Bala Mahadevan, who is the CEO of Orange Business Services India. And uh, we're here to talk, of all things, about smart cities of the future. Bala, it's great to meet you. Great to meet you, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I was intrigued because when we were uh, just chatting earlier, you pointed out something that hadn't occurred to me before, which is that the concept of the smart city, while popular now, is actually not an, in, well, not an entirely new concept at all. It's not. I think uh, if you look back in history, the, the concepts of smart city have been there for centuries. Um, you look at some of the walled cities uh, in the medieval ages. Uh, if you look at some of the temple towns and the forts and fortresses even in India, I thought they were pretty smart even <laughs> in those days. Uh, except they used uh, the laws of nature and physics and the elements of nature to build their cities rather than the sensors that we talk about today. So they could, for example, using uh, laws of physics and nature, simply make their buildings cooler or warmer, depending on whether it's winter or summer, regulate airflow. Um, some of the forts actually even had uh, acoustic chambers where a sentry could whisper and kilometers away that message would get passed on that there is an enemy alert. And I thought that was a pretty smart way even in those days for security and surveillance, which we talk about today. So I think smart cities have been around for, for, for ages. And there's even that sense of uh, kind of planning based on you know vocations and jobs. I was amazed when I went to Jaipur that you know, not only were they very specific about astrology, about the time you were born, that determined where in the city you were allowed to live. That's correct. I guess in those days we mixed a lot more of astrology, metaphysics, philosophy, uh, and, 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 and reality right. uh, together a lot more than we do today. But you're absolutely right. And there are temple towns that I have seen where city planning was exactly done in as geometric a fashion that even probably today we would find hard to imitate. So, yeah. so I think it's been around a, a long time. So what, what changes then, I guess, if there's always been this human desire to be smart about our surroundings, what does it mean to be in a smarter city? I mean, when you now overlay sensors and data and computation, what can we do now that we couldn't have done in the past? I think what's happening quite clearly is digitization is changing the world, and that's what is driving all this. So today, the number of connected devices has surpassed the number of humans on the planet. Um, and these devices generate massive amounts of data. They transform the business across all sectors. And, and, and that's what we are trying to bring in. And essentially, what are we trying to do when we start putting in all of these technologies to make a city smarter, if you will? I think it is to expect that the citizens living there will have a better quality of life. Um, will be able to access the resources that uh, are available much more readily. Uh, will be able to respond to calamities and emergencies much quicker and in a more proactive fashion rather than sit and wait for it to happen. So these are the kinds of things I think for the well-being of a citizen. So we are talking really a holistic approach using technology to make life easier and safer. There's something powerful about the idea of a city, um, you know, which makes this such an important and worthy objective in that you know, as cities get 
denser and more populated they actually become more creative and uh, the connections you can make become you know more powerful uh, companies you know in contrast are the opposite the bigger companies get often the more bureaucratic and less interesting they get so you know what is really the potential here besides making life easier to actually make a city more creative I think the the Conceptualization of smart city, first of all, it varies from city to city and country to country. And depending on the level of development, uh, the willingness to change and reform, mm. the resources available and the aspiration of the city residents, I think ultimately that's what drives how smart your city could be. Right. Um, Not how many like sensor-connected streetlights you have. No, that's, that's the last. <laughs> and even today, if you look at it, uh, yeah, you, you see uh, how many places you have trains and power systems and buildings and buses and roads. They haven't really changed in nature uh, over the last few decades. So the potential that exists within us to bring this smarter city alive is, is very great today. And, and I think we haven't really even scraped the surface. Well, what what is the sort of infrastructure that, that that goes into a smarter city? I mean, what are the applications and solutions that that, that essentially define a, a smart city toolkit? Yeah. Before I get to what are the technologies and, and tools that we use, we have to understand that really there are five elements that go into any of this, whether you're talking about a smart city, a smart country, a smart village, a smart uh, town, a smart community. Uh, the five essential natures are number one, uh, the, 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 where the physical and the digital infrastructure meet. Hmm. Uh, that's what we call the urban infrastructure and that's really for smart buildings, smart mobility, smart grids for power and utilities, that's one aspect. And then on top of that you've got sensors which include smart devices which capture and transmit data, that's the second layer. The third, and, third, and where, where do those sensors generally tend to live? The sensors could live anywhere. Right. The sensors today are mobile and they could be static too. They could be in, in uh, roads, in buses, in, in your distribution plants, in your power grids, uh, in your homes, in your offices. So Both public and consumer. Absolutely. Uh, at the citizen level and at the government level and at the infrastructure level. Right. So these are becoming pervasive. So that's important. That's where you capture. And obviously... Uh, you got to have connectivity in the city to make it uh, transport that that volume of data and data is not useless is, is quite useless till you analyze it so you got to have a layer of data analytics and finally you've got to automate this whole thing so you got to have a digital enabling enterprise or an interface that connects all of this and gives the citizen the access to all of this or the civic bodies the access to all of this so these are the most common elements if you will in any type of a smart city implementation, whether they are small or big. But if you look at uh, what are the uh, tools that, that, that go into this, or yes. even if you rise above the tools, what does the citizen get out of it today? What is the wish list of a government or a city planner or a city uh, resident? They want, at the basic level, adequate water and electricity supply and sanitation and urban mobility, which is very important, public transportation. They want good governance, e-governance. That's what the citizens are crying out for, uh, a sustainable environment, uh, safety and security, especially for women in certain countries. I think these are the end results of implementing these technologies. Right. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about e-governance because I think that's an area where there's still incredible potential and and curiously it's it's sometimes in you know developing markets where they have jump frogged you know a lot of bureaucracy. I was in Africa recently and they're using now um, M-Pesa to uh, allow people to sign up for a driver's license completely over mobile phone. And this is something very similar to what's also being done in India now, where a lot of your identity documents are stored in your identity system and a secure cloud. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a pretty interesting point you bring out there, from a, especially from an India perspective. Here, for, for decades and centuries, we never had a national register or an identity system. So the country has gone from nothing. And today, the aim is to get 100% of the population, even the just borns, to have an ID. This is the idea. The Aadhaar card. Yeah. And what is this? You jump from nothing into an identity system based on biometrics, fingerprinting, and retina uh, recognition system. So I guess not having a lot of legacy helped. <laughs> uh, but it's a great example of a smart city initiative. It's, it's never seen that way. But it's actually a great example of a smart city initiative that, that's at a country level. And when that happens, a lot of follow-on benefits accrue. It's transparency in financial transactions uh, to cut uh, black money movement, for example. Mm. Uh, it is to help getting public distribution systems for rations to go where they need to go to the needy citizen rather than getting lost along the way, if you will. It becomes an enabling platform as well because, I mean, so many things like e-commerce rely on the secure identification of an individual. Uh, but when you can tie something to their publicly trusted identity, you can accelerate e-commerce. That's, that's correct. Now, all this data is available. The thing that I think a lot of us in the industry are grappling is with... Uh, you have all of this data now, how secure is it and how open is it and how usable it is. Yeah. Um, today, uh, Singapore is a good example. Estonia is a good example, a small country in the Baltic Sea. Well, they're a true, truly digital nation, Absolutely. Right? Uh, way back in 2005, a citizen of Estonia could vote on their laptop, right? And to me, that was a very trusted digital infrastructure they had way back I, I, in I was before. amazed that in, in Estonia, Babies are given their digital identities even before they're given names. There you go. And you can file your tax returns, I think, in three minutes a year. <laughs> Correct. But that citizen, now taking that concept a little further, if you set up an ecosystem and have this data open and available, you can now have organizations and boot up and startup companies coming in using this data to now propel the smart city applications even further, pushing the envelope. So I think it's not just about smart city for the citizens, it is smart city as a platform for enabling newer ideas to come into the fray. Yes. Uh, I, I, uh, part of this, I think, is it provides a new framework for city leaders as well as business leaders to to manage a city. That's correct. It's a little bit of push and pull, actually. Right. Um, I, I think it does need uh, government bodies to enable, create the proper ecosystem, uh, the funding, the resourcing, and the drive. But at the end of the day, these things don't work until you pull these back, the pull the data back from the citizen level, from the sensors. And, 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 and have the civic bodies then act on that information. So you've got to, I mean, you have to transform not just the infrastructure, but the decision-making frameworks as well. Uh, absolutely. I was in um, Boston and I saw that they're using this thing called CityScore, uh, where they've kind of managed to aggregate all of the data about the city and its performance 
and it's a publicly available dashboard that then aggregates into a single number which shows you at a glance whether the city is doing better or worse on any given day. And there you go, and that's real-time information. Yeah. That's right. So, so I mean, if you're a 21st century civic leader, um, how do you need to adjust the way you govern when you now have this real-time information available to you but also to citizens? That's uh, easier said than done, quite frankly. I think uh, a lot of things have to fall into place for you to reach that utopian state. Yeah. Right? Uh, the play here is civic bodies today struggle. Take, take the case of uh, uh, security and surveillance and disaster management, for example. Uh, for a long time, we had data. Uh, maybe not quite the volume that we did, but, but while we had the data, uh, the city planners and the civic bodies were spending more time analyzing the event after it happened mm. rather than predicting it could happen and then taking real-time action to prevent it or mitigate the event when it does happen. So the, I, I would... Fukushima is a great example of that. Uh, that's <laughs> a great uh, example of yeah. that. And there are many such examples where these bodies... So if you divide it into three layers, I think there's a push from the top, the government. Uh, there is the pull factor from the citizens and the censors. But at the middle is the very critical layer, which is the civic bodies who actually make this happen and then make use of the data to make it beneficial. Mm. So they play a very important role in this chain. This is all becoming quite important in your, in your home country at the moment because India has taken the very bold step of declaring a, a 100 smart cities initiative. Uh, no, no small measures here. <laughs> There's no point doing one city, they won't do 100. So can you talk a little bit about this program and then I guess you know, how this has catalyzed a lot of new thinking? Uh, yes, I, I guess it's uh, getting a lot of uh, publicity too. And this 100 smart city program that uh, Prime Minister Modi unveiled, uh, I guess is catching a lot of press and for good reason too. But I think we've got to remember it's only one pillar of many uh, as part of a very broad uh, uh, digital India program, right. and which includes everything from internet access to broadband access to tax reforms to fiscal reforms to demonetization drives. is <laughs> a big. That's the whole ball of wax right there. A big part of that, obviously, is the smart city. Now, for for the longest time, uh, city planning uh, was a byproduct of failed urbanization in India. Uh, and I think we are trying to get a lot more structured uh, about it. A end of the day, uh, I think, uh, and, and this is not just in India, I think the stride of migration from rural to urban is only increasing. They predict that by 2050, 70% of the world population will be living in cities. So I don't think uh, this is an option anymore. Mm. And that's what is driving this. This requires very comprehensive development of the physical, the institutional, the social, the economic infrastructure. So it's not just putting a bunch of sensors out there. Uh, what is happening in India is uh, that 100 cities have been identified. That's what is called the 100 Smart City Project. Um, the, the, the purpose is to drive economic growth and improve the quality of life and the first 20 smart cities have been named officially and they are all in various stages of uh, smartization if you will. Mm. Um, uh, Bhuvneshwar, Pune, Jaipur, Surat, Kochi and the list goes on. Uh, many of these cities will require special investment regions to make it happen. Uh, special economic zones with modified regulations, modified tax structures to make it attractive for foreign investment. Mm. Because this thing will not take steam uh, and, and catch fire 
unless there is real money coming into this. The government is not going to do it alone. So PPP within India, private-public partnership, as well as attracting foreign investment into the smart cities will mean that you need to create this special what is zones. I mean what's the low-hanging fruit here with these sort of first 20 cities I mean it's got to be more than just better traffic lights right? I think uh, transportation is, is a is a big segment in urban cities of today you ask any citizen what is his biggest or her biggest concern they would say the commute hmm. um, so a lot of uh, uh, focus is going into that uh, railways for example, is being completely modernized in India. Um, more than 20 billion investment going on into metro rail projects in the coming years. Uh, the Mumbai Ahmedabad high-speed rail project will have an investment of $10 billion. Uh, India's first monorail project will cost about $500 million. Now, where is all that money going to come from? And I think the, uh, if executed well with all the funding that, that, that will, I think, become available, I'm just talking about phase one here. Yeah. So transportation is quite clearly a, a, a big uh, area. The other, I don't think it's a low-hanging fruit, but it's a very necessary fruit to pluck, however high it is, is e-governance. It is estimated an RDAR we spoke about, the yeah. National Identity uh, Card is, uh, is the platform for that. But uh, smart governance itself will require an investment, it's estimated over $1 trillion over the next 20 years. Um, and and, and uh, the foreign direct investment norms are being relaxed in India just to attract foreign capital to make the smart governance happen. I mean, underneath all of these ambitions is, I guess, as you say, it's a smart country model of, of what is India's role in the global digital economy. and. You know, we, I know we spoke about this earlier, and I, I've been thinking about it some more, which is, you know, India's been incredibly successful in the technology outsourcing space. Um, you know, kind of on a labor arbitrage model and be able to do things in the back office um, much more cheaply than in the West. Where do you think that needs to evolve to, you know, in order to leverage off some of this smart infrastructure we're talking about uh, to really propel India into the next. Yeah, you're right. I think uh, we started out being, if you will use the word, cheaper, and then probably we became faster and better. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you're, you're absolutely right. Those were the benefits that we were passing on back to uh, the stakeholders, if you will. One of the things that we have not quite come up with in India is probably the fact that we really haven't developed too much IP. Name a single software product that's known worldwide despite having 25 years of great software. Yeah, yeah, you could, you could, <laughs> stretch. But yeah, we, we, I, I think uh, development of IP, uh, especially IP that is very localized and is usable by the masses in India, mm. I think that's where this industry um, will, will head towards. Uh, and I think that is where the maximum uh, return on investment from all these years of benefits that the Indian IT industry has earned, accolades it has earned, I think there's a great opportunity for that to get translated back into the domestic space. Is there really the vision is ultimately that, you know, as you virtualize more of your infrastructure and you enable your citizens to truly become global in terms of what they do, um, that companies will start to see digital, uh, India as a, as a digital platform that they can actually plug into their supply chains to their broader business empires? I, I, I think the, it's going to take time, but I think that's the vision. Yeah. 
it's been done in Estonia. It's a population of 1.3 million. We're talking <laughs> about 1.3 billion here. So, yes. and scale, scale is a big factor, isn't it? Scale adds complexity. Hmm. Easier to do. It's like any project. What other it? what other smart cities uh, or nations have you observed that you think are good reference cases in terms of learnings or you know successes along the way? Many at a very high level over the last decade. Um, there are great examples um, in Vienna, uh, in London, in Malaga, in Malta, uh, South Korea, the Songdo Park. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, even Amsterdam. Um, so these are some good examples. But if you look at what uh, we ourselves have been working on, uh, some some excellent examples. Uh, uh, the King Abdullah Financial District, for example, in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, Orange has been working with the Al Raida Investment Company for years to develop this financial district. Uh, this is this discovers the entire gamut efficient management of transport and energy and security. So that's a good example. The Dubai Silicon Oasis uh, Authority, uh, DSOA, they have launched the Dubai Smart City Accelerator Program. So this is where they're taking it beyond just smart city. How can we use, like you said, the smart city to provide a platform for open interchange and thereby help accelerate this? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, great example in Marseille, in France. Uh, wanted to demonstrate a new way of life for green efficiency uh, using digital uh, services including Wi-Fi, digital surveillance, community portals, access control, parking availability. So those are, those are commonplace but well executed in Nice for example, um, uh, the urban environmental monitoring project for the city of Nice. They have installed thousands of sensors to simply measure pollution and traffic noise. Well, traffic is an interesting point because when you look at the highways in Los Angeles or the kind of parking lots that, you know, even surround the brand new Apple building, you know, despite that it's meant to be a company of the future, often prevailing technologies of a time tend to shape and bind the destiny of of a city and the way we live. How do you see some of the new future technologies that are coming in place? Um, self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, how will they shape the cities that we live in? I I think uh, connected cars and self-driven cars, for example, uh, there is an uptake in certain countries, uh, a lot of uh, work going on in that direction. I think the biggest impediment for that would be the physical infrastructure that exists in a city. Um, I, for one, cannot imagine a self-driven or or unassisted car uh, or a driverless car uh, on the roads of Mumbai today. Uh, (laughs) I I don't think it's quite built for that. So I think it's, uh, 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 it's not one solution for everybody. Just because a solution is smart doesn't mean that it's going to fit everywhere. So you've got to be realistic in terms uh, of the physical legacy infrastructure that we live in. Um, before we adopt, I think the right solution needs to be adopted that is viable. Mm. Uh, but yeah, transportation for me is uh, probably the highest. Uh, buildings, for example, I was uh, amazed to read that India is expected to emerge as the world's third largest construction market three years from today, adding 11.5 million homes every year. Uh, and, and smart buildings will save 30% of water, 40% of energy just in this alone. And I think that's a great potential. 
and uh, it's not cost saving for the sake of cost saving that money can go in elsewhere into other parts of the city uh, so i would say transportation for sure smart buildings for sure uh, smart energy um, currently india is planning to install 130 million smart meters by 2021 uh, so but again like i said if you look at many of the cities especially even the emerged or the emerging cities the number of physical installations we have today that we live and work in from the roads to the buildings to the utilities they especially in a densely congested area it's not uh, an easy play to simply put sensors and expect that you will become smart tomorrow <laughs> uh, that's not going to happen so it does require quite a great deal of planning um and that's just one of the challenges. Well, Bala, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Um it's very exciting a lot of these ideas and uh, makes me want to visit India again. Uh so thank you very much for being on the show. I look forward to it and I look forward to welcoming you in one of our smart cities pretty soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.